Welcome once again to another episode of Demand Gen Radio, the one program that brings you all the latest methods and technologies for driving growth and increasing demand. With the voice of Demand Gen, David Lewis. All right, welcome back to another episode of Demand Gen Radio. I was just saying before the program kicked off to my guest, but I feel like he's like Justin Timberlake and, and maybe I'm like Jimmy Fallon. I don't know. Maybe that's giving ourselves too much credit. But the point is, this is not the first. This is not the second. This is now the third time I have had Henry Shook, the founder and CEO of Zoom Info, on the program. And Henry, welcome back. Thank you, David. Good to be here. For those of you who don't know why Henry is back on the program, there's been a little event in his life, a little event, a good event for him, his team investors, and for all of you. Uh, and that is uh, Zoom Info went public recently. And after I saw the good news and congratulated Henry, I said, let's get you back on the program and not talk about the IPO and valuations and all that kind of stuff. I think, Henry, the really interesting story for so many of us that have been in tech and SaaS is the milestones, the major milestones, your, your startup phase and your building phase and and now this phase and what that's like for you and for the team and and how you got there because who wouldn't like to build a billion dollar company for those of you by the way who have been uh, loyal listeners or maybe new to the program the very first episode i did with henry was called um, how a 23 year old built a 150 million dollar company and i am pleased to report that is now a fraction of the valuation of uh yeah so we'll, we'll call this one from bootstrap to 15 billion how's that that sounds pretty good i have a nice ring to it yes <laughs> all right we'll it. so let's go back man it's it's startup time it's bootstrap you've uh you've got no outside funding you just have an idea that data should be uh, a useful utility for for marketing take us back what's that like yeah so i founded the company uh uh, my, with my co-founder in 2007, um, I was uh, I was 23 years old, and it was in my first year of law school. Right after my first year of law school at Ohio State University, and uh, we put twenty five thousand dollars each on our credit cards and went out to build a data set of companies and decision makers at those companies that marketers and sales reps could use to identify. Their, their next customers and connect with them in a seamless way and know information about them that would be beneficial in a sales conversation or in a marketing um, outreach. And so we bootstrapped the business, went out, uh, got our first customer in, in the first, uh, probably in the first five months, five, six months. And at the time, what we did was really like pretty basic from a marketing perspective. We built a targeted list of directors, VPs, and managers of sales and marketing. And we went out and sent them emails with samples of our product and said, hey, is this something that you think would be useful for your entire teams? And if it is, let's just set up a quick call and I can show you a demo of the platform. And that worked uh, and essentially every hundred people you sent, we sent a message to back in those days, one person would raise their hands to a demo. We do an online demo with them and we convert, you know, some percentage of them to, uh, paying customers. So the first six months we, uh, did our first deal with a staffing firm, a publicly traded staffing firm. And, um, 
And, you know, you learned a lot just from that motion. You learned how procurement worked. I learned how invoicing worked, how you onboarded a customer, what they expected from you. Uh, but we used the, the go-to-market motion, the email marketing coupled with demos and follow-up to really grow the business for the next seven years. And along the way, I think one of the, one of the key ways that we were early in sophisticating how we went to market was we were building sales automation into our go-to-market motion in 2009, 2010. And David, I think it was you who, didn't you recently post on LinkedIn an Excel spreadsheet of like cadences and sequences that you were building before there were tools that helped you do that? I, I did. And not to digress, I want you to know I found that document and I'm like, Henry, I think I'm going to post this SLA document from 10 years ago. And I thought to myself, this is totally boring. It's nostalgic to me. No one will give a shit. And, uh, but whatever. And I didn't, you know, I, I sometimes learn to just trust my guy, like, just get out there. That thing has had such an incredible amount of engagement, and I still don't fully understand why, but it, it is, it's amazing. Well, because I think the best, the best sellers and marketers in 2009 and 2010 were thinking this way. They were thinking about the sequencing of emails. And so we actually subscribed to uh, – I got cold called – um, early in 2009 from a company called Infusionsoft. And they said, hey, we want you to come to this webinar and you can learn about the future of, uh, of acquiring new customers using email. And I said, well, I already do email. I'm an email marketing whiz. I, you know, I don't need that webinar. And he was like, just come to the webinar. You'll learn a thing or two. I was like, okay, fine. So I remember like, it's so interesting because it's so crystal clear in my mind. The day I came in the office, I launched the webinar. It was the first like real webinar I had ever gone to in business. And I sat down and it was this like really compelling case to build sales automation through the Infusionsoft platform that acted both as a CRM tool and a marketing automation tool. And I kind of dove in head first. And I, I architected all of our outbound motion and um, our follow-up sequences so that when a, if a customer said or if a prospect said, hey, you know, this looks really interesting, but I, I uh, you know, reach out to me in two months, I had a template that would go out and say in, you know, in 40 days, it would go out to them and say, hey, you told me to reach out to you now. We had talked about this. And I just automated like all of these motions that we were running. After a demo, I'd have seven emails that went out to you as a prospect. They all felt really personal. So it felt like I was sending you specific content and reaching out for another call. And then we just deployed that across the entire sales force. Um, and we're like, okay, great. You can totally automate a motion, a go-to-market motion, and it works. And so we just kind of kept sophisticating that process through 2014, and then we brought outside capital in, in in 2014, TA Associates, a private equity firm, and our whole engine like broke within the first six months of bringing that outside capital in. Email marketing just stopped working for us. So here I am, I'm now 30. I just took my first outside capital. Um, the business was doing well, but the key thing that was driving the success of the business just stopped working. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
And it stopped working because I got a little bit over my skis on it. Uh And I said, look, if you put 100 emails into the top of the funnel and one of them raises their hands and turns into a demo, well, then we should be finding as many emails as possible and just shoving them all into the top of the pipeline and generating the the bottom of the funnel um, results. You know, that doesn't work because I went out to a bunch of, you know, non-reputable vendors, bought a bunch of data, shoved it in the top of the funnel, and then we started getting blacklisted, like all over the place. And so not only were our email marketing messages not getting across anymore, but our sellers couldn't communicate with their prospects, even when they were in a one-to-one sale because our domain had been blacklisted. And our, uh, you couldn't talk to your customers. It became this real mess that I had to like unwind. And I have a line of sellers outside my door like, hey, hey, my customer's telling me they can't get our, get our emails. My customer, this prospect is looking at us and our competitor and they're not getting any of my email. And like, and I knew it was totally my fault, right? Like I had totally embarked on this stupid strategy and it just blew, blew up in my face. The funny story about this it was I had to fix it. So I started getting us off of the blacklists, like kind of one by one by reaching out and saying like, hey, you know, this was a mistake. I'm fixing this. And then there was one blacklist I could not get us off. I couldn't find an employee at the company to reach out to. And worse yet, this blacklist provider kind of powered the entire Internet. Yeah. So I was just like they actually LinkedIn's company pages were on the back end run by this uh, blacklist provider. So our LinkedIn page went down, <laughs> like our emails weren't going through. There's nobody I could get a hold of. So I ended up hiring a private investigator and saying, like, go find me the CEO of this company. I think this is his <laughs> name and his Facebook page. Um, and it turned out he lived in Monaco. And I said, okay, well, track him. And when you know where he is, I'm going to fly to Monaco and I'm going to beg him to take (laughs) me off of the blacklist. (laughs) And 24 hours before I packed up my bag and went to Monaco, one of our uh, third party vendors and partners had a a relationship with this firm. And I just basically gave him a bounty. I was like, get me off this list. I'll give you $20,000. And he got us off the list. He reached out to his contact. He explained our business and they took us off the list. Um, but the damage that that could do is just like, it's so uh, monumental. Yeah. Um, I was so talking that, about this morning, yeah. Henry. Let me let you continue in a moment. But I was talking about marketer, no names mentioned, that has been spamming quite a bit and getting themselves in trouble with actually Salesforce. Because, like you know, I don't know if Infusionsoft did this or some of the other vendors, but I know that... Salesforce, like if you start sending and you're not supposed to be using those addresses and you start hitting certain bounce rates and re- like, they'll just turn you off. Like, yep. that's it. You know, and then yep. and you got to go to them just to even get your marketing system reactivated. Anyway. Can, yeah, can, that happened can, to me. Like uh, Infusionsoft came to me once. Um, and this is like after I'd used Infusionsoft for two years and they had this like heavy handed motion where they came to me and they're like, yeah, we're going to shut you off. We're about to shut you off. <laughs> I ended up talking to an account manager later and I was like, look, man, I've sent like how millions of emails through this platform and I have one batch of emails 
that trips over the threshold and you're calling me like you're going to shut off my entire like account. Like, just so you know, I'm leaving this platform. Like, I can't trust you guys anymore. Like, I, what if tomorrow you have like some weird decision? So I ended up, we ended up moving off of it, Fugionsoft to, to Pardot and we moved from Pardot to Marketo and we've moved from Marketo to Eloqua. So we've, we've basically been in every marketing automation tool. Um, so your, 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 your pictures on every ISP wall and, uh, and your logos on every marketing automation vendors wall. So there yeah. you go. So when you took private equity in that 2014 range, you did that because why organic growth was not going to get you to the next level. It's actually two, it's actually, uh, two reasons. One, a lot of the private equity dollars we took were, it's called secondary. And so it went to buy out my shares and my co-founders shares and so it was like a little mini exit at mm-hmm. the time. Um, and then we also just felt like, look, the business was growing. We wanted it to be something bigger. Um, and in order to, to make it something bigger, we wanted that sort of professional board guidance that you would get from a private equity firm. And we thought that there, was, there were opportunities in our future to do M&A. And really doing M&A without access to the capital markets where you can raise debt or raise additional equity to make a, an M and A uh, acquisition, it's just it's really hard to do on your own. Like, what yeah. do you do? Go down to, you know, U.S. Bank and ask them for a two hundred and eighty million dollar loan to buy out like a competitor in the space. There just doesn't exist without the without the access to the capital markets in the way that the private equity and, and VC community have access. So let's fast forward. It's uh, it's 2020, the third stage, uh, and I want to hear two things. One is, how did your go-to-market motions change in that third wave? And then let's follow that up with what it's now like to be a public company and a CEO of a public company and, and the demands and, and pressures on you. But before you go there, what changed? Because your recipe worked as well as was, you know, it's just math. It's waterfall yeah. math. If I, if I put 100 in the top, one is going to come out to the next stage. And then if I do enough of those, then I'll get some close one business. But that that's a, a very slow process these days to grow. And you've had to change quite a bit. So what what's the market for stage three? What's the go to market? Yeah. So what so today. Um, so it's sophisticated in a big way. And, it, you know, the, the automation that we built in the early days, that still exists in our organization today you know, in different forms. But today, um, 60% of our business comes in inbound. It's generated by marketing. 40% uh, we generate through outbound. And so we have a team of SDRs who are making uh, outbound calls to folks who uh, either are totally cold, but we built uh, some dynamic lead scoring that takes a look at all the companies in the Zoom Info data set and then ranks the ones who are most likely to be buyers of our of our product and service. Um, and, and then they also reach out to, so there are outbound SDRs, then there are SWAT SDRs. The SWAT SDRs are reaching out to folks who've come to our website, poked around, but haven't uh, asked for a demo or a free trial, but maybe have downloaded a white paper or come to a webinar. And then, uh, and then we have inbound SDRs. And so if you come to our website today and you fill out a form, somebody's going to get back to you in 90 seconds. The person who's getting back to you in that 90 seconds is the sales development rep who we algorithmically choose, 
who's most likely to convert your type of company and your level of seniority into a demo. Wow. They, it's really interesting. Uh, that is very, we're going to, we're going to, I'm going to follow up with you on that and talk more about that. So Unless you wanna, that's cool. The very next cool. step actually is, is I think in my opinion, a little even cooler where when you agree to that demo, then the SDR is, is presented with a list, an algorithmically chosen list of account executives who are most likely to close that opportunity at the highest, at the highest ASP. And that list changes every month based on, uh, based on account executive performance. And it's a tr- three-month trailing average. And, and the, the two biggest metrics, like if you go into most organizations today and you say, who's your best account executive? Everybody's almost everybody is going to go. It's this guy who sold, who sells the most. But the person who sells the most, when you're delivering them leads, is not always the person who's the best salesperson in your organization. Because if for some reason I'm delivering that person the best leads, and then the second person kind of like not as good of leads as the first person. And I'm delivering the, the number one person kind of a lot of leads at really high quality. Then the conversion rate from like demo and opportunity to close business might actually be lower for that person. And so what we've done is we've normalized for that. So we can actually see uh, rep by rep the number of leads that they've gotten, the quality of those leads that they've gotten, and then what they've converted by number and quality to closed one business. And we're looking back, we're doing a trailing three-month look. And so reps are either in tier one, the best leads, tier two, three, four, five. And they have the opportunity to move up and down that tier system based on their performance each month. Or we do things like, let's say a rep wants to move from tier four to tier three. One of the things that we'll do for them is if they agree to coaching, and so they have to go through sales enablement coaching and they, there are a certain number of hours that they, they agree to spend coaching and activities that they do for that month. We'll move them up a tier gratuitously in the following month and they have the ability to keep themselves there. Or if they, if they overperform, they can move up. And if they underperform, they can move down. Um, and so that is, that's, the, that's the front end of the process. The, it gets handed off to an account executive. The account executive closes the business and then hands it off to an account management team. Um, first, a, a, a learning and development and implementation team that gets everything set up. Um, and then an account management team and a customer success team who's responsible for uh, renewal and upsell. And then the customer success team, which is responsible for the health of the account. I love you sharing the recipe. And do you know what I'm thinking about as you broke down the entire recipe from stage one to stage three? I'm yeah. thinking, how many CEOs know that formula of what their company is doing? I just recorded a podcast with Nicholas Draca, and he's the CMO. I've worked, I've worked with him for many, many years. And one of the things he said is, marketing is horrible at marketing marketing. That, that, that most CEOs and executive teams don't really know what marketing is doing. And yet you have a intimate knowledge of every piece of the process and stage of the go-to-market motions that you're doing. Is it is that Henry Shook or is that a type of relationship that the head of sales, the CEO, and the head of marketing need to have these days in terms of – because we are going through digital transformation or 100%. it's here. So what do you yeah. think? So 
Yes. I mean, the, the answer to, is yes to both of those. <laughs> it is. You do need a real alignment with your head of sales and your head of marketing. Now, one of the things that I would say here is um, I think most CEOs don't realize how much of a strategic tool your go-to-market motion is. Mm-hmm. And you can make your go-to-market motion an incredibly valuable piece of strategic motion. And most people think like strategy happens with M&A and it happens with product and product roadmap. And go-to-market is your biggest strategic lever in a company. And people are just not, you know, they haven't come to realize that yet. And, you know, between in the second phase, between 2014 and 2019, we completed six M&A transactions. And one of the key drivers to that was we would look at a business and go, yeah, it's doing well. But if we run go to market the way we do in that business, we can make it grow faster and grow more profitably with half of the people who are there right now. So and when we made it, we made an acquisition of a company called Ranking, made mm-hmm. the acquisition and we were able to make that business grow faster, grow more profitably just by bringing our go-to-market motion into it. And so when we made the acquisition of Zoom Info, you looked at the same thing. Like here's a company that's growing. It's growing fast. It's really successful. Can you imagine what will happen when we layer our go-to-market motion and strategies against it? And so I think if, if you're a CEO and you're um, shirking the your kind of obligation to really understand go to market, you're leaving a major strategic door open to your competitors. And mm-hmm. you know we were beating our competitors often when we you know I couldn't look you in the eye and tell you I was sure that we had the better product, but we were painting the better vision and we were mm-hmm. going to market better. And there are an endless number of examples like that where two products have total parity with one another, but one is just out there running circles around the other one because the other one because the the, the more successful company figured out their go to market motion and you know build a great product congratulations get product market fit congratulations you still got to sell that thing you got to mm-hmm. generate interest for it you got to do that efficiently and effectively. Um, you have to be able to position it and message it and drive demand for it. And if you're not doing all of that in the most effective and efficient way possible, it's just a major strategic lever you're not pulling. Sounds like, and I want to make sure people hear this from you, building a business, going from bootstrap to $15 billion, sounds like it's just been smooth sailing, wind behind your sails, everything worked out. But you and I both know that you have to fail a lot. Oh my goodness. That kind of success. So you've learned ton, tons of lessons and things that don't work. I'm curious, totally sidebar question, what hobbies or sports did you play as a kid? I played water polo and I swam in high school. Water polo and swam. And actually, I, I played club water polo in college and law school too. Every ball you threw probably didn't go in the net, did it? Not every shot, no. Exactly. I mean, such great lessons from our youth about you just keep treading water and you keep throwing the ball. There is something to be said about um, fit here, too. And I had this realization a couple of uh, years ago, which is um, 
and I had it around golf, but then I'll, 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 I'll link it to business. But I, I tried to golf and I can't golf. I'm, I'm an awful golfer, but I would go and I would play and I would try to like convince myself that I was having a good time. And at least I got to hang out with my friends, but I was not improving like basically at all. It was a snail's pace. And so no matter like how much time I was putting into golf, I was putting in a lot of effort but only getting like a little bit better each time. And then, um, and then I, I felt that way actually with law school too. I would work really, really hard, like just as hard as I could to write briefs or do the, do the assignments. And I'd have a roommate who like couldn't care less about the assignments. He'd just sit down at his computer. He'd knock out a brief. It was like beautifully done. He's always getting the best grades in the class. Um, and then, and then I, and so the corollary in sports was with water polo. Every time I put effort into it, I got exponentially better at it. The, I put in a little bit, I get a lot. I put in a lot, I get a, you know, an extreme amount. And with zoom info, I've always felt the same way. Like every effort I put in drove the business exponentially. And so I never felt like it was a grind. And so it was like, oh, I'm going to work really hard at this thing. And then the outcome was always like really great. And so it always felt like the fit was right. Whereas like the fit with golf and law school, those fits were not good for me. Those were bad fits for me. And so listening to where your strengths are, I think is probably a really important lesson too. Love it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it, it is you can tell by your energy, anybody listening, how passionate you are about the business, how passionate you are about growth and success. You know, in the beginning, that that startup phase, the only people you had to answer to was your employees and yourself. Maybe some friends like, hey, if I fuck this up, then that's on me. Yep. Then the private equity phase, oop, now, you, now you got some other people to answer to. Uh, and now you have uh, people that you have never met yep. to answer to. Hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, maybe even... Uh, a million investors don't know uh, how many investors there are now for your business that you have to answer to. What What's it like, Henry? I mean, there was a celebration moment. I'm sure feeling like you you climbed to another point. Um, but now the expectations are, are probably uh, quite a bit different. And, and how do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, one of the well, – well, definitely the expectations are different. And there are many more investors in the business than there have been. And, you know, I had personal, I had very close personal relationships with all of my investors before we went public. And so I had years to build trust with them and they knew me and they knew if I said I was going to hit a number, I was going to hit a number. And they knew if I said I was going to do something, I was going to deliver on that. And now I have a bunch of people who hear me on a conference call once every quarter and maybe have a follow up meeting with me. So they don't really know they don't really know me and they don't know the business as well as my previous investors. Um, and you layer on that everything when you go public is really public. And so you have a bunch of people out there who are guessing about your strategy or you write a press release and they, they're reading every single word of it to try to understand what you're doing or second guessing a direction you're going in. So there are just like many, many more eyes. It's much, much, much more public. Um, but it is, an, it is an incredible validation to the business that we've been building because the market and, and our customers kind of have been able to see now sort of how great of a business 
we've been able to build. And so now, like the 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 pressure is much is higher, um, and it's kind of longer looking. And so you're like, you know, what is the business going to look like in the next decade? And now, how do I keep the these growth rates at the place they are, you know, over the next decade and longer. Um, and what does the strategy look like to do that? How much of it is organic? How much of it is inorganic? How much of it is new products? How much of it is the core product? Um, so it's really a, it's really a different, uh, it's a different animal being public, mm-hmm. but you know, I'm two months in, two months in June, July, August, two and a half months in. And so, you know, my sense is it becomes like with everything, it becomes more normal over time. I remember right before I became a a finished law school, I was like, man, it's going to be so amazing to be a lawyer and doing lawyer things. And then as soon as like you become a lawyer, you're like, okay, yeah, I got it. It's not that big of a deal. So I'm waiting for that moment. Um, for being a public company CEO where it just feels like normal day to day, but it does today still feel more, you know, fresh and you, you are really driving towards perfect execution for the next decade. That's the demand. Um, and so making sure that you're in, in the operations of the business, you're making really clear what perfect execution doesn't look like. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then making sure that people are driving towards getting there. I got, I got, I think one last question for you that I, that hopefully won't tank your stock price. Um, <laughs> Dave, please, please don't. Uh, the 10 year plan. I don't believe in it. Yeah. Maybe my point will change at some point, but I mean, if, it should change by the way. That's actually the, well, finish your question. So that you, you, you already read it cause you're quick. It like, do you, do you believe in the 10 year plan? Do you know really what zoom info is going to look like 10 years from now? Because I don't think Apple knew. I don't think Tesla knows. I don't think even Facebook knows, you know, but does Henry know? Yeah. So no, I don't. I have a vision for it, um, for what it could be 10 years from now. But I also completely recognize that our space and our industry moves so fast that that changes every year. But I think it's important to go like, here's the universe of what this can look like 10 years from now. And then making sort of in-year decisions about the direction you're going um, to reach that. And just knowing like next year, that 10-year vision can look different. Uh, and, and the year after that, it can look a lot more different than that. But I'm with you. Like I've never particularly been somebody who said like, you know, this is what five years from now, 10 years from now is going to look like. But I think having a viewpoint on it is different than having a roadmap to it. And so I think I can have a viewpoint on 10 years from now without yeah. having a roadmap for 10 years. From now. I don't think anybody can look 10 years out and know what things are going to be like. If, if they did, then they knew COVID was coming, right? Do you think Ace Hardware knew that, you know, in 2019, that next year they'd have uh, to be, almost fully dependent on online ordering and have to have a, a line management system outside the door for pickup and everything else, right? Business changes, things happen for good, things happen for bad. Uh, but you guys have definitely showed a consistency in growth and success and a, a testament to your leadership. What I was going to say was, uh, for me, it's all about the mission. It's all about the purpose. And that that really doesn't change. You know, what, what you set out to do in terms of your motivation, our mission when we founded the company was to make marketing heroes. Still the mission to this day. 
People have tried to challenge it and say, well, Dave, we work with sales and marketing and customer success and all this different infrastructure. Shouldn't our mission read about what about those guys? And I'm like, our mission is still about making marketing uh, heroes because I believe, and it's happening, that marketing is the center of the universe for revenue growth and driving. That that while sales plays an important function, that that you know it's changing. The teeter totter is 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 tipping more to marketing's role in driving growth and driving revenue for an organization and the responsibilities that they have. So let's just make sure that those guys are heroes uh, and and not to ignore anyone else. Um, Henry, as we wrap up again, congratulations on this next milestone. I look forward to episode number four with you, podcast number four, which is going to be the fourth stage and and what that's like. Um, the, 20 way, billion, the $20 billion company stage. 20, well, you, you know, I don't know if your goal's big enough, all right? But yeah, maybe. Oh, well, you know, it's just the timing of when that interview will be. Yeah. All right. We'll figure it out. Uh, for anybody listening to this podcast that wants to get to know Henry and set up a meeting, you, if he's a guy who's willing to hire a private investigator to go to Monaco um, to get Henry's attention, why don't you send him a case of Keurig coffee cups? Because I see as a machine in his own office behind him. He also has a lumberjack looking shirt today. So maybe send him an axe or something uh, and, a, and a nice Patagonia shirt. How do I get a Zoom Patagonia shirt? That's I'll send you one. Not, not shirt, but, uh, but uh, vest. I will send you one as soon as we hang up here. Where are you that you could possibly be wearing a vest right I'm now? I'm in an air-conditioned building. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're way too wanting to be warm. Take that thing off. It's crazy. Anyway, Henry, congrats to you and the team. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in. I hope you guys take away some really great insights, which is, you know, you got to figure it out as you go along. And, and your game plan changes. Your playbook changes. Um, it takes a lot of effort to grow a company and have the success that Henry and the team have had. If you don't know what Zoom Info does, uh, Henry, I would like you to uh, connect me with the person who best demos your product. And let's do a demo on Demand Gen TV because we launched that since the last time we talked. So we've got a YouTube channel that's doing quite well. If you guys haven't checked it out, go to demandgen.tv. And hopefully not too long from now, we show you a demo of the Zoom Info platform because it's something you should see if you're looking to grow your business. All right, that's going to do it for this episode. We'll catch you guys on the next one. Take care. You've been listening to Demand Gen Radio, bringing you the top industry experts, thought leaders, authors, marketing technology firms, and senior marketing leaders from around the world to teach you the methods and technologies for high-performance marketing. 